Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening, I'm William Hosea. Welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 13 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening, I'm Jennifer Crossley. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear about the upcoming Indiana Black Expo from Bring It On contributor Roberta Radovich, all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first... The mission of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, or the IBLC, includes improving educational efforts to close the achievement gap that threatens to shut the doors to opportunity for minority students at all grade levels. Additionally, enhancing public policies that will address the primary concerns of minority citizens in Indiana, such as reducing crime, gun violence, and domestic violence within our communities, and targeting assistance to address the needs of families struggling to obtain basic necessities such as housing, utilities, clothing, and food. And with that, joining us this evening to expound more on the initiatives and progress to date of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus are the Honorable Cherish Pryor, Chairwoman of the IBLC, representing Indiana's House District 94 in Indianapolis, and the Honorable Greg Taylor, Treasurer of the IBLC, representing Indiana's Senate District 33 in Indianapolis. To our esteemed guest, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you for having me. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, go ahead. Uh, are we here? Are, go ahead, you got it. Oh, just uh, thank you all for having us on. We're very, uh, very excited to, to be on the radio with you all. Well, thank you. Uh, we're going to have to adjust to this delay in our signal here. Um, okay. <laughs> well, I have to ask a question before we get started. Can we go a little bit informal for the rest of the show? Can I call you Cherish and uh, Greg? Yes, that'll be fine. Okay, yeah, great. Okay, Greg, uh, we keep stepping on each other. Why not? Let me go ahead and step back and give you the mic for, for a second here. No, uh, th- thank you. Yeah, you can call me Greg the whole time, and I'm sure that uh, Chair- Chairwoman uh, Pryor will, and I will answer and hopefully be able to answer the questions that you have. Okay, great. Cherish, I, I just want to say I have been receiving your newsletter updates, and thank you very much because that really keeps me abreast of what's going on in the IBLC and uh, some of the events that you all are addressing up in Indianapolis. Well, great. I'm glad uh, that you're receiving them, and feel free to pass those on to other individuals in the community or in a few know of, of people. Um, who want to sign up uh, for my e-blast or follow IBLC, uh, we are base- available on Facebook and Twitter. So oh. we would love for people to uh, to follow us so they know what's going on. Okay, so we have uh, several topics that we'd like to cover t- tonight, like the uh, Healthy Indiana Plan, Crime Control in Indy, Affordable Housing, some of the IBLC initiatives, uh, the Black Expo, and then if we have time towards the end of the show, we just want to touch on this uh, whole uh, incident with uh, 
Curtis Hill. But to start off with, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, bring us up to date on the IBLC and when, what you guys have been working on? Uh, well, you know, so earlier this year, we had some town hall meetings um, around the state. We had held uh, six town halls in various communities around um, the state of Indiana to find out, one, to, to let people know what happened during session, and then, two, to get feedback from um, our community about issues that were important to them. Um, one of the things that people uh, brought up uh, quite a bit was uh, redistricting and how important that was uh, to them and their concerns about how it seems as though um, elected officials are choosing who represent them versus um, the people making that decision because of how districts are drawn. So uh, there's been a lot of, of uh, concern in our community um, about uh, about that. So um, that's one thing that, uh, as a caucus, we are going to continue to work on. Um, and then I'll let uh, Senator Taylor talk about the hate crimes legislation, which he has, he and uh, also um, Representative Greg Porter have, has been spearheading for our caucus. Um, yes, in regards to the hate crimes legislation, as you know, and a lot of the people in the state of Indiana know, Indiana is one of five states in the country that does not have a hate crimes law. So what's important to understand about that is uh, it gives protections to people uh, and their property, their physical, them being, them or their property being physically, uh, uh, you know, harmed by a third party. And Indiana is one of those states that doesn't recognize and cover hate crimes legislation. So we've been trying to get that passed for quite some time. I have, and then Representative Porter, since he's been in the Indiana General Assembly, has been doing the same thing. So something like hate crimes legislation seemed, really seems like it, it's a no-brainer. So what type of argument uh, is a Republican uh, legislature uh, using to, to block uh, that, that kind of uh, law? Well, the first thing, of course, is people misunderstand the law. Say, they believe that it, it punishes thought or, or uh, punishes people for making statements. So it's an infringement on the First Amendment. I want to make it very clear that this is only if somebody acts on those prejudices could they be charged with a hate crime. But the second piece is, where does it stop? Because hate crimes legislation would actually expand the protected classes, in other words, it would add sexual orientation and gender identity to the mix. Um, there are people who have problems with that on the conservative side of the aisle. Okay. And um, just out of curiosity, um, if this once this is brought back up again, do you have any hope, which I hope we do, um, do you have any hope that this actually will be passed this time? I've, I've kind of taken a different approach uh, to this process, whereas in the years before, last five years, I've been very frustrated at some of the shenanigans that went on with mm -hmm. the with the bill. So this year, I'm trying to get some support from the Indiana Chamber, which seems to have the ear and the eyes of most elected officials, and to see if the Indiana Chamber could, 
could uh, spearhead some discussion on this issue. So we'll see what happens. Um, I, I encourage your listeners to contact their legislators and ask them to support the legislation and, uh, you know, just watch and see what happens starting in January of 2019. This is, um, the hate crimes legislation has really been kind of intriguing in the sense that generally when you have um, good legislation like uh, hate crimes legislation, um, each year you introduce it, uh, it gets a little bit closer to passage and eventually pass maybe on a third, second or third try, generally a third try. In this particular case, though, um, the several years ago or three years ago, when it was introduced, uh, it made it, I think, out of the out of the Senate and did not get a hearing in the House because the chairperson of that committee did not see a need for it. Uh, so that was the first year. The second year, um, it made it to the floor of the Senate um, and did not come out of. Uh, out of the full Senate to even get to the House. And then this year, it did not even get a hearing. And that has uh, somewhat been unprecedented in the fact that, um, you know, when we have legislation, you know, we understand that sometimes legislation does not get passed that first year, but when you have good legislation, um, people bring it back. And, and when you have bipartisan support, support for that legislation, Usually it will get passed. This particular piece of legislation has been in the reverse, and that has been very disappointing. So are, are we seeing a rise in uh, hate crimes in, in Indiana uh, that would have been impacted if, if we had a hate crimes law? Well, in, Indiana law already requires that law enforcement agencies report any potential hate crimes to the Indiana State Police repository. Unfortunately, of the only of the over 300 plus um, law enforcement agencies in the state of Indiana, there's only a handful, maybe 12, that actually do that. Uh, but what we have seen is an increase in that number uh, for the last three years, anyway. Uh, somewhere upwards of. Uh, 75 have been reported, um, and then again, that that goes to the fact that there's over 300 law enforcement agencies, and only 12 of them actually uh, report the information to the state police. Okay. Um, just to kind of switch gears um, just a little bit, I um, want to talk about the crime control in Indy. Um, and Greg, I actually had a chance to meet you last year. Um, when I came up to the state house with the Moms Demand group, so and we were listening to the session that was going on there, so I just wanted to inject that. Um, but we, I just saw in the news, uh, you know, recently that Indi or Indianapolis is on track to pace out years uh, or last year's rather homicide rate. Um, what do you think? Um, I, I guess what is there that the community can do to prevent, you know, this to keep happening? It seems like year after year, um, it, it it seems to outpace. Each year is getting to outdo um, one another, and so it's what what can you talk to us about and how you know 
how they can stop that? Well, nobody likes to see a negative trend like uh, increase in homicides. And these homicides seem to be located in specific areas of our town, of the inner city, uh, local east and west sides of the city. And what we're finding and what I believe that would be very good is if we had, uh, if we can create a system that allows law enforcement to actually arrest and actually prosecute more of these homicide uh, criminals, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now we're looking at a homicide clearance rate in Indianapolis of approximately 40%, some say 50%. But what that says is if you commit a homicide in the city of Indianapolis right now, you've got a 50, 50, 50 chance of getting away with it. And with those numbers, what happens is one person commits a homicide today and then retribution happens three weeks later because somebody says, well, I think so-and-so did it and so-and-so has a brother or a sister or a cousin who wants to take along to their own hands. And we have a lot of that going on. So I think we need to, you know, and I think the mayor's office has increased or the IMPD has increased the number of detectives in the homicide division, uh, focusing on more strategies to clear these homicides quickly. Um, and I think that's going to ha- hopefully have a positive effect on the uh, crime in Indiana, in Indianapolis. Okay. And if, if I can just uh, inject a couple of things, too. I think, um, uh, one, uh, we need to also make sure that people have opportunities to good paying jobs and economic development opportunities, yeah. um, and not just a job paying seven twenty five or eight dollars an hour. We really need to have good paying jobs so people um, have a way to um, to make a living. Um, and the other thing I think is, you know, we need to have serious conversations with people who might be committing crime or who are, who is committing crime about what they, they think is the solutions. I think oftentimes people, um, we get together and we try to determine what's going to be the resolution when, if, when we're not the ones that are committing the crime, but people who are, who are committing the crime give us the best, um, I think, information. The other thing, though, is um, several weeks ago um, the prosecutor um Announced that there was going to be a collaboration with the um, with the feds on trying to get this the crime under control. Um, so I think that people in the community really need to be aware of that. Um, the cases the prosecutors might normally handle under this partnership, some many of those cases will be turned over to the federal prosecutors, and in those instances. You know, you might be looking at longer sentences um, and, you know, people being taken um, out of their community. So there's so many more things that that's going to be happening and it's starting to gear up in Indianapolis as it relates to crime simply because the, the feds are now uh, stepping into Indianapolis um, to 
do something about the crime that's happening, and that is going to have a major impact on communities and families uh, across the city of Indianapolis. And, you know, when you talk about um, crimes uh, or or violence, uh, the, the stereotype usually points to communities of color. And so if if they are bringing in the feds and they're going to kind of amp up the uh, focus, does that mean they're going to be focusing more on communities of color? And in which case, uh, you know, to some degree, uh, black folks end up being victimized by that effort. Well, (laughs) Um, I would say that you're probably correct, which is why I've mentioned that so people will know. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Yeah. Sword. Yeah. Um, you know, you you want crime to decrease, but then again, you over policing then leads to um, negative consequences in the community. Um, but that is the that is the path that our prosecutor and IMPD and um has in the mayor's office everybody has uh, chosen uh, to take um, because, you know, we're on, and when I wake up in the morning, I expect to hear that somebody's been shot and killed, and that's very unfortunate, mm-hmm. um, if not one, maybe two people every single day. Um, but um, it, it could it, it certainly lead to over-policing, and over-policing does not uh, fare well in our community, and they are going to be targeting the areas in which there has been a high crime. Right. So it will be our communities, absolutely our communities. You mentioned uh, something about a living wage just a couple of minutes ago, which kind of gives me a segue into our next uh, topic that we wanted to cover. The the Healthy Indiana Plan, which is something that you uh, wrote about in your newsletter. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the the Healthy Indiana Plan, also known as HIP, is a health insurance program for low-income qualified adults. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. But Governor Holcomb plans to impose a work requirement, and this is straight out of your newsletter, plans to impose a work requirement on 400,000 people in Indiana who rely on the the Healthy Indiana Plan. Mm -hmm. And and your newsletter goes on to say the most – Vulnerable among us will lose health care. Exemptions under these laws fail to protect people from losing care, and these requirements make it even harder for people to get the care that they need and deserve. And uh, I think you have a petition that you're circulating uh, to yes. try and stop the governor. Well, go ahead and talk, talk to us a little bit about that, please. Well, the, the Black Caucus, this is one of the things that we have uh, signed on to. The Black Caucus has signed on to a co- coalition to oppose the work requirements because a lot of people will lose their health, their health care. They said that there are exemptions in there. However, um, there may, if you make just a little bit above uh, what that requirement is, you might lose your health care. Um, and so what we don't want to do is for people uh, who are caregivers, people who are on disability, people who have never had health care insurance before, who now have health care, don't aren't allowed to get it anymore because we're imposing work requirements. Um, and as as a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, a federal judge um, struck down the work requirements that uh, Kentucky had imposed on their citizens for their 
um, for their uh, insurance program. So what we don't want to do um, is to have people without health insurance when we, you know, it sounds good to say, you know, we need people need to work and people who are out there barely making it, trying to make it, uh, who have disabilities, people who are right. caregivers who may not be able to work because they're caring for a family member or loved one 24 hours a day, um, all of a sudden in a situation where they're no longer able um, to have health care, it's not something I don't think that is uh, appropriate. It's not a path that we should be going down, and people need to, to know about it, and hopefully people will, will go to, to our Facebook and Facebook account and um, go to the petition and sign up to to let the governor know that they're not supporting this work requirement. Greg, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, I, I think it's important to understand that health care is something that a lot of people um, have a hard time paying for already. And to add this requirement after people have had health care insurances is, uh, you know, it really doesn't make sense to me. Um, now, I can't understand. I, I, I have not read the uh, proposal. I have not read the, uh, the exemptions, who's exempt or how they're exempt. But whenever you have something like this that comes out after the benefits have already been uh, allocated. I just don't understand how changing the rules midstream is going to help. So, from a practical standpoint, I think they're going to have difficulty doing it. And last but not least, what you're seeing across the country, and I liken this to what's going on with the Affordable Care Act that Congress is doing administrative changes to, you're seeing families make decisions that are, you know, it doesn't make any sense. For example, I, I, I was listening to a talk show host yesterday talk about families getting divorces because if you make more than a certain amount of money in the household and your child has a pre-existing condition, it, it's better to get a divorce and only report one of your incomes so that you can get the benefits of the Affordable Care Act, depending on what that pre-existing condition is. Well... That's because the government changed in the middle of the, the the process, changed how they allocate the income. So you're forcing people to technically, you know, you got a child that's got a lifetime illness and it costs an exorbitant amount of money and you've had insurance paying for it and now being told you got to pay out of your pocket, the only choice is to go get a divorce so that you qualify for the subsidy. And then the other thing is even, you know, people, um, access to also uh, work and that impact. What in some places um, that have tried to impose this work requirement, they've given exemptions to certain communities. So communities that are generally um, not urban communities, generally that doesn't have a lot of com uh, minorities, uh, what what we have seen is that they, there is an exemption for those, those individuals to not have the work requirement. But people who may be living in an urban setting where more minorities uh, live, 
that rule still stands. So even in that situation, um, there is a, uh, a discriminatory practice where one group gets an exemption and another, uh, another group does not get an exemption simply based on geographical location. However, that still boils down to the demographics of, uh, of whether or not it's a minority group or not a minority group as well. So that is something um, that we, we have not done that in Indiana, but that concerns me, uh, and that's also another red flag of why we don't need to be going down this road of having this work requirement. Okay, I see what you're saying. Okay, so this brings us to another hot topic is affordable housing. So we've talked in depth about um, affordable health care and, you know, living wages that people can actually live with. Um, can you guys talk about what are some of the things or the initiatives that the IBLC is currently working on um, to combat and ensure that our communities um, are getting affordable housing? Well, well one of the a piece of legislation uh, that I have um, introduced for several years called, is called the in, um, um, Neighborhood Enhancement District. Um, and what it would do is um, it would, for individuals who are in communities in which the communities are now thriving and the homes, the people moving back, uh, maybe senior citizens or people who lived in their homes for 15 or 20 years are now and their property taxes drastically increased because their assessed value is going up. Um, my program, the, the program that I have introduced, would cap the rate of tax increase that a person will receive for those long-term homeowners who've actually lived in those properties and those properties are their homesteads because we don't want people to be displaced because their property simply because their property taxes have increased so much. So these are for, like, communities in which um, maybe there was a high crime and uh, where some of the houses were not the best houses. But now there's all of a sudden interest for people to come back to the communities. And people are coming back, well, that that's going to increase um, the value of the home. So a lot of people who are on fixed incomes or who are low-income individuals just don't have the money to pay those higher taxes. So I've introduced the bill, and the, and the caucus has supported that, that would cap that rate of increase on property taxes so that people would be able to stay in their home. So that's one thing that we're doing as a caucus um, yes. to try to make sure that people are not priced out of uh, priced out of housing. So is is there a formula that would be applied to, to that cap, or, or is it just uh, uh, like a flat tax rate or what? It is a formula that would be applied, so you would have to qualify. Um, you would have to have lived in that in that home for 10 years, um, and, um, and your property tax would only increase 10% from year after year. So instead of paying the full increase, of your property taxes, you would only pay 10% over the prior year. So, uh, because I do think it's important for people to pay a little bit more, but oftentimes going from a assessed value of a home that was 100000 to one that's 300000 where you were 
paying $1,000 in property taxes. Now you're going to 3000 That's significant. But if it's a 10% increase, you know, $100 is much more reasonable than, 10, than you know, $2,000. So that 10-year uh, requirement, is, is that a one-time exemption, or does a, does a clock start each time someone moves into the neighborhood? It starts when the, upon passage of the bill. Um, it's not for people who recently moved into the, okay. the houses, because in those situations, those individuals, they're purchasing the house at their higher assessed value anyway. So they're already purchasing it to two or 300000 This is for people who have a, a record, a property tax record, that shows they've lived in that property for 10 years and they've had that homestead there for 10 years. Uh, so it does not go, it does not apply to people who are newly coming into the community. Uh, it applies to people who have been in those communities for years who lived through the downturn of, seen the good times right. of that community and lived through the downfall of that community, and now it's on the upswing. We want people to, to reap the rewards uh, from which they've, uh, they've contributed to that community. Um, so someone who, who's newly moving into that community, they're already getting the benefit. Uh, but people who've lived there for a long time, you know, the, this program is geared towards those individuals. So it does not push them out of the, of the out of their home. So that bill could uh, uh, slow down or stop the devastating effects of gentrification on, on people of color in those communities. Is that true? That's the basis of the bill. Okay. Yep. Um, that is absolutely the basis of the bill. Okay. All right. And so now we have this upcoming weekend, which a lot of people, especially myself, is looking forward to, is the Indiana Black Expo. Um, how about you guys tell us a little bit about the expo and what people can expect? Uh, let, I, you know, I think that the chairwoman, we, we actually have a, uh, there's a couple things we're doing and I'll let the chairwoman talk about those. Oh, well, we, uh, we have always supported, uh, Indiana Black, Black Expo. Um, they have a lot of activities going on. They have the Black Business Conference, which I think started today. They kicked it off with the ecumenical service uh, this past Thursday. They had the mayor's breakfast today. The governor is going to have a uh, reception where he's going to give out awards later on this week. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things, good things that happen uh, during Expo before people even get to, I guess, the actual exposi- exposition uh, except, except, itself. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to have the health fair. Uh, one of the one of the great things about Expo, I think, is the things that happen beyond the concerts, which everybody knows about and get excited about. Um, but those things are that health fair, which is so critical for so many people in our community. And for years before we had the hip uh, the hip program. People didn't have access to health care services. So Expo has had one of the largest health fairs in the country. Um, and that has been significant and benefiting 
low-income individuals and people without health care. Um, they're going to be doing that again this, this year. Um, and obviously, they're going to have the concert as well. And then I think on Friday, they're going to have their corporate luncheon, which has always been a, a, a very big success. Um, and Indiana University uh, has been on the radio here in Indianapolis talking about the, the fact that they want people to stop by their booths. Um, as well, and Expo is free this year. It's free last year. It's free this year. So people don't have a reason um, not to come out and support it uh, because it's going to be free. Will the IBLC have a booth uh, at the Expo? Um, this year, we're not going to have a booth. We had a booth last year. This year, um, we uh, were not able to work out things with people's schedule um, so that we would be able to go because we had to do it for three days, and so we didn't have enough people to cover all that time. So we will not have a booth this year. But okay. will, members will be around out and out and about uh, ex, at Expo and for, during their activities, though. Well, we uh, really wanted to end this on a positive note, but we got a few more minutes. So I want to talk really briefly about the IBLC joint statement on Curtis Hill. I don't want to get into... Uh, you know, the details of that whole situation, but just the statement that you put out uh, and what your position is. Um, our statement was basically that uh, with with the cloud that has been over the head of um, the attorney general, we felt that it was best for him um, to resign. Um, you have to work with the leaders of all four caucuses in the governor's office and having all of those individuals ask for your resi- for his resignation um, makes it very difficult for him to be effective in his job and we're at a critical moment um, in our state and in our country that where we need a very strong person in that position the highest law enforcement official in the state of indiana we need someone who does not have a cloud over their head so that they can do their job effectively. Uh, and unfortunately, this particular situation has just taken, um, it, it, it's a, it has caused so much attention to be uh, on the attorney general and his office. I don't, I don't feel that he can effectively do his job, having, knowing that he has to work with all those, uh, all those players. So no charges yet, but his uh, ability to execute his duties as attorney general are, are greatly affected. That concerns, yeah. That that was the basis of our press release, yes. Yeah. Uh, Greg, do you want to comment on that? No, I, you know, uh, I really think uh, Jared's put it best. Uh, that was the... That's the reason that the statement came out. Okay. So we are down to a couple of more minutes now, uh, and I want to uh, uh, give you two the chance to maybe talk about anything that we didn't cover or just to reiterate some of the more important points that you did cover. I talked a lot, so I'm going to um, give my time to the great senator. <laughs> the great senator. I think he was going to say the same thing about you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, let's, let me say this. I, uh, 
I uh, appreciate the opportunity. I know uh, Representative Pryor does as well. Uh, appreciate always appreciate the opportunity to get out the message to people who are interested in what we do and interested in what we uh, have to deal with. But I think it's important to understand that, uh, you know, all of the things that we say on behalf of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, we have uh, 13 members scattered throughout the state of Indiana, and we're always thinking about ways to expand our influence, in other words, get more members. So I just want to encourage people to start getting involved in the uh, local uh, issues in your community, and I think they'll get that sense of uh, wanting to be a part of this. Um, we're, we're, we're at a time right now where more than ever we meet people uh, with with some, I well, let me say this, some humble people with some good ideas and concepts that uh, that don't damage or hurt people. Mm-hmm. Too many times politicians hurt people, uh, and we're seeing it happen across the country and across the world. But we just need to change the direction of where this is going. And if there's anybody out there listening who wants to get involved, I always suggest get involved locally at city council, uh, get involved in politics and talk about what you want to see happen, and you might find yourself running for office. You know, we we have uh, some good people down here who are trying to do exactly what you suggested, getting other people involved. But as you know, it can be a struggle. So we uh, also at Bring It On just want to express our appreciation to both of you because every time we call the IBLC, you always respond and give us some of your precious time. So we really appreciate that. And thank you guys again. Yes, thank you. Awesome. Our thanks to the Honorable Cherish Pryor, Chairwoman of the IBLC, representing Indiana's House District 94 in Indianapolis, and the Honorable Greg Taylor, Treasurer of the IBLC, representing Indiana's Senate District 33 in Indianapolis, for joining us today to expound more on the initiatives and the progress to date of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff, and the address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to 
For our continuing salute to summer, you just heard the iconic What's Going On, first recorded in June 1970 by the legendary Marvin Gaye. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB news website at WFHB.org slash news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Jennifer Crossley. At the top of the hour, we mentioned that an overview of events of interest for the upcoming Indiana Black Expo would be coming from Bring It On contributor Roberta Radovich. She joins us now by phone. Hi, 
Hi, everybody. How hey. are you tonight? Hey, Roberta. How's it going? Long, you know, it's been a minute. <laughs> I know. But, I hey, know. I got to tell you this. I hope everything's well done at the station. You're going to have to talk nonstop without even taking a deep <laughs> breath for, like, the next 12 <laughs> minutes. So go. Oh. Okay. Well, how about if I start from the stop? How do, how about if I start from the top? It's all yours. Okay. Sounds good. Well, we are um, excited that once again it's Indiana Black Expo Summer Celebration, and Indiana University has been a proud supporter of the Indiana Black Expo Summer Celebration for 48 years. If you can believe that, that's just two years short of what IUPUI is going to be doing. Um, starting July 1, they've already started their celebrations of 50 years, 50 years IUPUI. So um, the Indiana Black Expo Summer Celebration is 48 years old for, with regard to Indiana University's presence there. And we've been involved really since the beginning. We're, we're so proud of our continued partnership. Um, there are several different um, uh, ways that Indiana University is a contributing partner. Um, and making their presence known there. I'll go ahead and focus on our weekend uh, presence, which is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the IU booth, which is booth number 403 in the big exhibit hall. And entry is free every single day at Indiana Black Expo Summer Celebration. That's a huge, that's a huge win. That's something that the Black Expo Incorporated has been moving toward for many years. So Indiana University will be expecting uh, well over 150 volunteers made up of faculty, staff, students, and alumni um, university-wide to be on site to support students and families at the exhibition. The focus of the 2018 Indiana University um, uh, IU presence is really on making sure that our 21st century scholar families are, are, are being able to check in with official representatives from Indiana University as well as the uh, statewide administrative arm of the 21st Century Scholar Office. And so that means that the scholars, the prospective scholars and their families can come visit the IU booth. They can check off um, some uh, uh, success requirements. They are able to check in with a uh, 21st Century Scholar statewide administrator who will make sure that their status is updated, that scholar track, um, tracking their success scholar requirements is activated, that they are plugging things in, and generally just making sure that they are on the right track to get that free scholarship to any four-year or um, community college experience once they graduate from, from high school. So we think that our purpose of being at the exhibition is to, you know, really help um, deliver and develop the message of distributing information and resources that will help inspire, you know, college-going, college-bound students to seek post-secondary education and to provide support, to provide support, excuse me, for underserved students and their families through strategic collaborations with Indiana University, like checking and making sure that you have your 21st Century Scholar uh, uh, package, so to speak, ready to go upon completion. Hey, hey, Roberta. Yeah. When uh, I said oh, you had to talk nonstop, I didn't really mean that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but hey, let me... You got me started. 
did it, and I just didn't know how to, you know. Well, that's what happens when you're passionate about your work. <laughs> but uh, let, let me jump in there with a question real quick. Yeah, the, please. The, the 21st Century Scholars uh, program. So, I mean, uh, the information that you're going to be passing out uh, at the booths that you mentioned, this is for future applicants. Is that correct? It is. It's for future applicants as well as currently okay. enrolled. And so that means students can enroll as a scholar as early as seventh grade, but no later than June 30th of their eighth grade year. Okay. So that's so good information. At the know. expo, if you fit that window, you can come down to the expo, come down to the IU booth, and get yourself, uh, you know, uh, signed up. As long as long as we haven't passed that June 30th window with regard to you going into your eighth grade year. Okay. And, you know, I just want to say I have several family members who took advantage of that program. Oh, good. So it is worth yeah. its weight. Yeah. It it's, really is. There, statistically speaking, there's a huge, huge percentage of um, our students in the state of Indiana yeah. whose families are eligible for the 21st Century Scholars Program. And we're just seeing that not everybody's taking advantage of that opportunity. So, um, you know, using um, our IU presence there is one way to kind of help, um, you know, close the gap. Right. I'm a product of 21st century. Is schools. that right? Yep. You are. Yeah. <laughs> would, you like to talk, would you like to share with the listenership a little bit what a success requirement program uh, requirement is just so they understand. Ooh, it's been a long time. So, oh, it's um, been a long time. <laughs> yeah. So I did this. Um, you I, might have to help her out. Yeah, I'm like, eh, you may have to help me. Um, but I was able to sign up through my middle school. Um, I'm originally from Gary, so I was able to sign up from there. Um, okay. But yeah, I just remember that helped out tremendously when it was okay. time for me to go away to school. It was extra money that was coming in for me. Yeah, so I guess the the success and and I don't I don't have the um I apologize that I don't have a message point to address when those success scholarship requirements were activated by the state, but they are currently um in they're active. So ninth graders, 10th graders, 11th graders and 12th graders have um, action items that they must complete and record in Scholar Track. And so, one of the um, services that we're providing at the IU booth is to um, come and complete at least one and sometimes even two of the requirements for each of the grades. Hmm. So, for the ninth graders, the 10th graders, and the 12th graders, there's actually a video component that they must complete. Um, we've worked, Indiana University, university-wide planning committee has worked with the commission to develop these videos that can be utilized at the booth, and then students can record those requirements in their um, scholar track. Likewise, the 11th grade component is actually an, a campus tour. So Indiana University is not seeking to recruit anybody um, particularly through the 21st Century Scholars Program component. Okay. But what you can do is complete your college tour. That is a requirement right there at the booth with an admissions representative or some other professional staff person from Indiana University from, from all eight of the campuses on mm -hmm. Saturday and Sunday. We'll have campus representatives from all 
from all of our campuses and our two regional centers. They're introducing the campus and helping the students learn more about all the opportunities statewide that Indiana University has to, to, to offer. So what else is uh, the university involved in with regard to the Black Expo? So we actually do have, there's a, there's a couple of other components, including a, two, two new pieces I really want to share because I think everybody would be super excited about them. Now, although the education conference is closed, the registration is closed, we do have um, two really unique um, workshops that are being presented by our Indiana University, uh, two sets of workshops that are being presented by Indiana University folk. And the first one is actually a group from Bloomington. They include the 21st Century Scholar Director, the director of the Hudson and Holland Scholars Program, as well as the director of the Group Scholars Program. And that that trio will be presenting the building blocks of access and student success at Indiana University. And then we have another Indiana University presentation that will be taking place by Natasha Flowers, Ph.D. She's a clinical associate professor at the School of, um, uh, of Education at IUPUI, and she will be presenting on Partnership for Justice, Accountability of Schools of Education through Collaboration with Urban Schools and Local Organizations. So we're really excited about the social justice and educational um, intersection that Indiana University is going to be offering and providing at the Education Conference. The other thing that we're super excited about is something very, very new. uh, the, one of the directors of the African American Arts Institute, uh, the director of the African American Dance Company, uh, Stafford Berry, we call him Baba Stafford, he will be part of the Art Speaks Cafe, and then he's also going to be doing a couple of special things, like maybe a flash mob? <laughs> mm, <wow. laughs> flash mob? <Saturday. laughs> maybe, maybe! <laughs> A flash mob on Saturday. Um, uh, so we really want people to come on out. I don't want to give away all the secrets and all the fun, but uh, that's something we're really excited about is having that the both the both the artistic component of African American culture as it lives in at Indiana University, as well as a broader um, diasporic presence. Baba Stafford brings. Um, a variety of dance um, um, genres to the African the African diaspora to his students in the classroom, and so we're really excited to be able to share that diasporic component down at the Indiana Black Expo, which we know is Black American, very 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 Black American. But to have you know some uh, some tastes from some other places is something that we're really excited about. Well, Roberta, that you know, you did exactly what we asked you to come mm-hmm. on and do to come, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, I think you got some people excited yes. about going to the Black Expo. I am. Well, good. Well, I hope to see you guys down, or you know, tell your neighbors, tell your friends, tell your little cousins, tell the kids down the street. It's free all weekend, and really, I, this is something I do personally get very, very excited about because how many Big Ten institutions? really, really, really get to participate in something like an Indiana Black Expo. It's it's so unique. And how many of them have Roberta Radovich to, uh, to hype <laughs> it up? You know? Well, I, I, I appreciate that, but I just, 
these are one of the moments I feel incredibly proud to work for Indiana University, incredibly proud to be a resident of um, the state of Indiana. And I know there's so much bad news and so much, um, you know, so many things that we have to consider in the times that we find ourselves. But this weekend is a celebration of what our state and what our university is doing to support and celebrate and honor and really lift up the importance of diversity inclusion in the modern in our modern times really really it's it's really a special moment our thanks to roberta radovich for joining us this evening to provide an overview of events of interest for the upcoming indiana black expo to view a calendar of all events, including concerts, the signature employment, and the career fair, and the phenomenal health care health fair featuring over two thousand dollars in free health screenings and services, go to indianablackexpo.com. If you have an event or happening the African American community should know about, please send that info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, you can contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Once again, our thanks to the Honorable Cherish Pryor. Once again, our thanks to the Honorable Cherish Pryor, Chairwoman of the IBLC, representing Indiana's House District 94 in Indianapolis, and the Honorable Greg Taylor, Treasurer of the IBLC, Represented Indiana State Senate District 33 in Indianapolis for joining us today to expound more on the initiatives and progress to date of the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer is Chris Martin. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effium with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am William Hosea. And I'm Jennifer Crossley. Tune in next Monday, July 23rd at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. To Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of community radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.